We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined on the telephone this evening by Ross Feingold. Good evening. And also on the telephone by Donovan Smith. And good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing Jingmen County turning on its taps to water from China, a possible strike by airline pilots from both of Taiwan's main carriers, rumours that ROC passports are not being recognised, calls for support for pro-nuclear power referendums and claw machines. And we'll begin, though, with President Tsai Ing-wen, and she'll be paying a state visit to both Paraguay and Belize next month, and she'll be attending the inauguration of Paraguay's president-elect, Mario Abdel Benitez, on August the 15th, and she'll also meet with Abdel Benitez and outgoing President Horatio Cartes for talks. She will then travel to Belize on August the 16th for a three-day visit, during which she'll meet with Governor-General Colville Young and the country's Prime Minister, Oliver Barrow. It will, in fact, to be Tsai's fourth overseas trip since she took office in 2016. And of course, she'll be transiting in the United States. Tsai will stop over in Los Angeles on the first leg and in Houston on the return journey, which of course has led to much predictable belly aching from Beijing. And Beijing this week called on the United States, in fact, not to allow Tsai to transit there, with China's foreign ministry saying that Beijing has lodged solemn representations with Washington about the planned stopovers and remains resolutely opposed to the United States or any other country arranging this kind of transit. So, Ross, predictable belly aching from Beijing, but what do you think Tsai hopes to gain from this trip to Paraguay and Belize? Well, if we go by past such trips, it's not going to be much different in the sense that uh, there'll be transit visits through the United States. We would expect President Tsai to meet senior officials from the United States government, both the executive branch agencies, whether it's AIT or State Department or Defense Department, members of Congress, both from the Senate as well as the House, possibly state or municipal leaders in the two cities, states that she transits through, Los Angeles, California, and Houston, Texas. And in the countries where she visits, she'll attend uh, these uh, inaugurations or bilateral meetings in, in Belize. There'll be lots of photo opportunities with the other heads of state or heads of government that attend the inauguration in Paraguay. And China will complain. Uh, It doesn't look like we're set for any major differences or breakthroughs. The only thing to look out for would be does she interact in a high-profile way with people that typically have not interacted with Taiwan's president in the past in a public way. And that would include both at the public events in Paraguay as well as in the transit stops in the United States. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, um, I think that was a pretty good summary. The, the real question for me is um, whether or not the Taiwan Travel Act is going to have any effect here. That's that's I think the real test. But the fact that she's transiting via Los Angeles and Houston suggests that we're not going to see any high level interactions with state uh, or uh, national government officials out of the ordinary. That's at least sort of the suspicion one gets by choosing those two cities. Well, again, uh, the, the fact that she's transiting the United States is completely consistent with previous Taiwan presidential overseas trips, whether to uh, Central South America 
or Africa, or in, in a more recent case with the South Pacific with a transit stop in Hawaii. Uh, so it, it seems, at least for this trip, the fact of the Taiwan Travel Act is completely irrelevant. And, and again, that, that would apply not, not just to where the president herself goes, but also who sees her. So uh, to the extent that President Tsai will interact with members of the American Congress or the State Department, the Defense Department, I think those would have occurred based on the status of bilateral relationships, irrespective of the Taiwan Travel Act. So at least at this early day, and I say early because it's still early days to see how the implementation of the Taiwan Travel Act will occur over an extended period of time. But at least at this point, it seems irrelevant to bilateral relations. Obviously, yeah, it, it, this this trip looks totally totally ordinary, and so far, at least, there's no indications that this is going to be anything unusual or out of the ordinary. But of course, it does come at a time when, of course, China is trying to actively poach Taiwan's diplomatic allies. Well, that's an issue for uh, the countries that she'll be visiting in South America. Uh, it's not so much an issue for the transit stops. Again, as we've been discussing. The transit stops are so routine over such an extended period of time that uh, it's almost hard to believe that China's protestations were made with any great effort or sincerity. They would have just taken out the talking points from the previous uh, trips, and these trips averaged two to three a year going back through Ma's presidency and Chen Shui-bian's presidency, and every time China says the same thing or the Chinese media will say the same thing. So probably you know, really nothing new as far as the Chinese side uh, on the transit stop issue. But you raise, you raise a fair point, Gavin. You know, is, is this the last time the Taiwan president will be visiting these two countries? And we never know. And, and why do I say that? Well, we only have to look at the example of Panama where President Tsai, in her first overseas trip in June 2016, attended the inauguration of the uh, new and improved Panama Canal. Uh, unfortunately, the first trip to sail through was a Chinese-owned owned ship, which is a bit embarrassing, I think, for the Taiwan side. Uh, and then months later, despite claims of how wonderful bilateral relations are, the fact that President Tsai attended that event, they broke off ties. So. We really never know if this is the last time, uh, and uh, I would not put much uh, credence in any claims that relations are stable and are going to last forever. With yeah, you know, I, I, the thing is, is I, I, I think Paraguay seems to be pretty stable at this point, but um, China may or may not try and poach either one of these, as, uh, you know, as Ross suggested, but I, I do think that China can only poach so many so fast because the the more that they poach, the less of a cudgel it becomes. So, you know, I mean, they may at some point take Paraguay or Belize, uh, but the um, the you know the. The more uh, diplomatic allies that China takes, the less of uh, the sort of the less leverage in the sense that they have. Uh, if they take all of Taiwan's diplomatic allies, then they have nothing left to beat Taiwan over the head with. So. Um, I think it's going to continue to be a slow drip drip, uh, and I don't see that, that they're going to make any major moves uh, across the board. It'll be another one 
to sort of down the road rather than a giant sweep. Well, we often talk about uh, how China maximizes its leverage by doing what, what Donovan just described, because it maximizes the international media attention. It maximizes the embarrassment for the government of Taiwan, regardless of who, who's the president, uh, to space these out over an extended period of time. Uh, what we saw earlier this year with, with two in one month is, is somewhat unusual, and it definitely was not the pattern in the past where it was more like one every six months or once a year, and then you, you reassess the overall conditions, cross-strait relations upcoming elections in Taiwan or whatever other factors China wants to take into consideration. However, uh, as a counterpoint to what we were just discussing as far as the historic pattern and spacing them out, uh, no country wants to be the last one either. I I don't think uh, Belize or Paraguay uh, if they're contemplating this change, and of course they have, it, it, would, it would be silly to argue that they haven't, regardless of who's the current uh, political leadership in these countries. Uh, I don't think they want to be the last. You don't want to be the last in, in South America or, or in the Caribbean uh, to get a great deal from China as far as uh, aid. Uh, that, that's kind of what Swaziland's position is in Africa, and they're probably going to be looking for more aid than they already received from Taiwan because they're now the last in Africa. I mean, what have you, Donovan, this, this trip domestically, do you see the general public here in Taiwan paying no attention as they usually do when heads of state go abroad? I, I pretty much think you're right. I think the people would be paying slightly more attention than they would have if, say, it had been mine, Joe, uh, just simply because, you know, the, you know, there have been some lost recently. But I think that's a marginal, uh, you know, I, you know, I think the people will be paying marginally more attention. That's really about it. I think only real political junkies are going to be paying much attention. Well, it is coming close to an election, but it's a local election, you know, typically uh, showing yourself on the international stage in in any type of election, whether it's uh, completely free and fair or less so. It just helps energize your your voters to say, I'm a a well-traveled statesman and people respect me and and you should vote for me. We have to balance that against, uh, as you said, Gavin, the the fact that the public um, is increasingly disinterested in these trips. Uh, They're very unfamiliar with the countries. There's this negative perception that the countries only maintain formal diplomatic relations in order to extract uh, taxpayer fund, Taiwan tax taxpayer-funded development assistance, Uh, and uh, it's not relevant to the issues in the local election where the issues really need to be uh, local traffic, local air quality, which I'm sure uh, Donovan could share more on for (laughs) Central Taiwan, Uh, and and that's what the public is going to be voting on in in the local election in November. They're certainly not voting on whether or not Tsai Ing-wen was treated with respect when she transited Houston or or, Los Los Angeles and which American senators or congressmen or assistant secretaries or deputy assistant secretaries or other U.S. government officials she meets with. So to answer your question, it it really does not resound well with the public if the public uh, even pays attention. And then there's also the downside risk, which is uh, some kind of snafu. uh, And we've seen these in the past, right? We've seen the wrong flag, the wrong anthem is played, uh, the, the, the placard in front of 
the president's name at a banquet table says People's Republic of China instead of Republic of China. Uh, so there, there always, there's always the potential for these moments of, of embarrassment as well. So hopefully the team traveling with Taiwan is going to be on top of that. But based on past experience, we know that these things do occur. And right, we'll move on. And residents of Jingmen will be turning on their taps to water from China this weekend when the county government there holds a ceremony of a water deal with China's Shaman City. And that's taking place tomorrow on August the 5th. Now, Jingmen's Water Authority signed a 30-year water purchase agreement with its counterpart in Fujian province to meet its water demands in 2015. And construction of the 17-kilometre-long water main connecting reservoirs on both sides was completed earlier this year. Now the pipe is expected to provide about 30% of Jingmen's total water supply but needless to say the planned ceremony has drawn the ire of the government here with the Mainland Affairs Council this week calling on the Jingmen government to postpone the ceremony due to China's ongoing efforts to limit Taiwan's international space. Now the Jingmen County government has said the ceremony is going to go ahead but it will be a wholly non-political event. So Donovan do you think this can be a wholly non-political event? No, that's uh, impossible, of course. But, I mean, the uh, the you know the Mainland Affairs Council and uh, Jinmen County basically kind of uh, figured out a way to split the difference. And that Jinmen, it, it will no longer be a ceremony. It will be a presentation. Uh, it won't be a national level uh, supported by the Mainland Affairs Council ceremony. In ceremony, it will now be a local Jinmen County presentation. Uh, so that kind of allows the central government here to save face and Jinmen County to move move forward. Um, now, I, I think the long-term issue here, uh, you know, outside of the national security issue of uh, whether or not it makes sense for Jinmen to be taking 30% of their water from uh, uh, from a city that uh, used to host uh, the, um, the, <laughs> the, the guns that were bombing them, um, the uh, it, what's interesting is that the Mainland Affairs Council, the central government, and Jinmen seem to have been, have been for a while have been kind of at loggerheads on what to do with China. Now, Jinmen, of course, is very much unlike Taiwan, is historically very closely tied to China. The people there are definitely Chinese. Their families. Uh, both on both sides of the strait there in Fujian province. They had the three mini links long before Taiwan had any uh, connection direct contacts with China. Uh, so the, the contacts, the connections, the relationship between Jinmen and China are much, much stronger than Taiwan or Penghu. So the, um, of course, and of course Jinmen has traditionally been a stronghold of the new party when Taiwan is pretty much forgotten or laughed at the new party and turned it into an irrelevance. It still remains a strong force out there. So Jinmen County, of course, the government there is still working hard on keeping a good, strong relationship with China. And so it protested when the Mainland Affairs Council canceled uh, the ceremony, in spite of the fact that the Mainland Affairs Council had very good reasons for doing so. Of course, China's recent canceling of the uh, East Asian uh, Youth Games uh, here in Taichung, and of course, uh, the pressure on the airlines, the... Um, blocking of the Nanto Junior High School uh, 
supplier from playing in Vienna at the UN headquarters there and all the things that China's been doing recently, I've given ample reason why the Mainland Affairs Council would not want to do a ceremony celebrating relations with China. Um, and yet Jinmen County fought back. And uh, so what's very interesting is how relations, I, I guess what I would be watching, is relations between Jinmen County and the central government in Taiwan. And, and that's actually what I'm watching with some interest. Well, I'm going to take a bit of a different view here. It's a little uh, of an overreach that the Mainland Affairs Council issued a public statement saying to Jinmen, you guys, we suggest, should uh, tone down the nature of of the launch ceremony for this large infrastructure project uh, simply because of these other events that really have nothing to do with Jimin, and frankly, they have nothing to do with the launch of this infrastructure project, which has been many years in the making. If anything, if central government officials thought it was inappropriate for central government officials to attend, they could have quietly told the Jimin uh, government, we're not sending anyone. And they could have publicly uh, said that, or they could have publicly said, oh, well, there was some sudden event and we're not able to send any repre- representation from the central government. We had an urgent meeting. You know, any any number of excuses could have been given, and everybody would have understood that it was not appropriate timing for central government officials to be at, at a happy event with Chinese government officials. Uh, but you know, punishing the, or attempting to punish or, or paint as in the wrong, the, the Jinmen government, the elected officials of Jinmen, or the people of Jinmen, uh, who do need the water, uh, and this seems like a reasonable transaction. There, there's, of course, there, there's risks, but there's always the risk that pipes will break anyway, regardless of where the water is coming from. Um, and yeah, the, here there's a heightened risk that China would turn off the, the water if there was ever a dispute with Taiwan. But there's one more factor here. Not very long ago, just a few weeks, in fact, the Mainland Affairs Council adjusted the regulations with regard to the three mini-links that, that Donovan mentioned to make it easier for visitors from China to come into to Jinmen. Um, so it, it seems a bit inconsistent uh, what the central government's behavior is. But, but ultimately, I, I think they made more uh, of a news event out of this by publicly saying now's the right time. Uh, not the right time to have an event due to these reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with Jinmen. I, I do think actually that the Mainland Affairs Council was right in the sense that the the way that the East Asian Youth Games were canceled was particularly egregious and particularly offensive. Um, and I, I do think that Taiwan needed to make and was under political pressure to make some kind of uh, response toward China. And really, this is a pretty small one. Uh, We're not going to send some people, and we're going to downplay a ceremony. But I think another element of play here is that this is is more of a Ma-era kind of activity. And I think that the DPP generally speaking, doesn't, (laughs) doesn't like uh, celebrating Ma-era achievements. But, but, but they basically said, we want you to tone down the event, right? They, they, they didn't simply say, we're not going to send people. Yeah, right. no, and, and I think they're right. I mean, the, the way the East Asian Youth Games were canceled was totally out of line. Even China's behavior. Yes, and, and I think that the Taiwan needed to give a response. I mean, they couldn't have just gone ahead with it. The event just doesn't seem to be politically astute. 
But, what, but the thing is, is that, you know, when China does something like the, the canceling of the, I mean, they just called a sudden, um, uh, a, you know, extraordinary meeting out of the blue and go, uh, oh, we're just canceling the, the event. And... Uh, Without without notifying the Taichung city government, the you know the EAOC had been previously very very uh, had been praising uh, the Taichung city government on their progress and the quality of the preparations. And in the contract specifically between the Taichung city government and China, uh, sorry, and the uh, East Asian um, Olympic Committee, uh, it specifically states in it that if there are any disagreements, that there needs to be negotiate you know harmonious negotiations between the host city and the east asian olympic committee on on whatever issues they may be and there have been no issues and you know there there, there were no reasons given for why taijung was uh rights to host the event were revoked uh they were not informed of, in advance of the vote they were not involved in any negotiations it was just simply snap out of the blue the event is canceled um and against the the details of, of the contract that was signed uh between the host city and the east asian olympic committee so for taiwan the taiwan government to just go ahead and say oh well you know we're going to play nice and you know everything's going to be hunky-dory with our chinese counterparts you know, ceremonially, I, that I think would have sent a really bad tone locally, politically, when there's considerable uproar going on here locally, uh, particularly here in Taichung, where um, the last three polls had uh, Lu Xiuyan of the KMT six points ahead of Lin Jialong, and then a poll just came out where his support ratings had jumped up to 12 points over her. Now, the polling, of course, this early stage is unreliable, but definitely there has been a move uh, toward support Lin Jialong and his outrage and, and uh, his response toward China. And, of course, the central government here has been very strong in their backing of his efforts to try and get the uh, games back in that atmosphere for the mainland affairs council to have this uh, big buddy buddy ceremony uh with our counterparts across the strait would you know an honoring china would have been totally inappropriate but we're talking about two very different things one is whether or not the central government would be represented at the event yes i i understand that it would be inappropriate for the central government to attend. But it's a completely different thing entirely to send a letter or, or issue a press release saying, uh, Jimman County government, you guys should tone down the event. I, that, that's really a decision for, for the gym, people at Jinmen and their elected officials. And I, I think the Mainland Affairs Council could have stepped away from attending the event. But telling the Jinmen government to tone down the event, uh, I don't see what purpose that achieves. Anyway, we shall move on and we'll hope that the water in Jinmen, when it comes through those pipes from China, doesn't taste as bitter as the argument we just had here about whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. They toned down the ceremony. Anyway, talking of more bitterness, it looks 
forces of China Airlines and Ever Airways pilots are set to disrupt the mid-autumn festival holiday next month, taking possible strike action following unsuccessful negotiations regarding working conditions. Now, the Taoyuan Pilots Union says that a majority of its members have already cast their ballots on whether to strike, and a final vote in favour of strike action is now considered highly likely. Some 70% of China Airlines pilots and some 50% of Ever Airways pilots belong to that union. Now, the dispute centres on disagreements between the pilots and the carriers over management style, time off, and how days off are actually defined. Now, the Taoyuan Pilots Union says it will give at least three-day warning before taking any strike action, while the Civil Aeronautics Administration has said that airlines maybe should give between seven and ten days' notice before they take strike action, and a recently appointed minister has said maybe they should give at least two weeks' notice before any strike action takes place. Now, it's an airline strike, and of course airline strikes do affect a lot of people and they cost a lot of money, and a one-day strike by China Airlines flight attendants two years ago cost the carrier 500 million NT and affected some 30,000 passengers. So, Ross, strike action by pilots over working conditions and days off. Well, if you talk to pilots, which I have in recent days, uh, they feel very justified uh, for the reasons that have resulted in the in the vote being in favor of a strike. And it's a accumulation of these issues over time that both management and the pilots seem unable to reach a happy accommodation. Uh, generally, uh, the airlines have good reputations with the public, I say generally because whenever there's some kind of flight delay or something that negatively impacts passengers' comfort, it always gets in the news because the Taiwan media really enjoys those kinds of stories. But we see all that uh, EVA ranked very highly in the, in the recent uh, Global Skytrax ranking, uh, one of the top 10 airlines in the world. In fact, uh, China Airlines' quality of service has improved dramatically over the last 15 years. Uh, certainly their safety record has improved dramatically. Uh, both air airlines have purchased many new aircraft in recent years, so again, it's, it's certainly a, a comfortable trip uh, versus many other airlines to fly on these two airlines. So generally, the, the public likes them, but they're not going to get any public support on this issue because, uh, as you indicated, it, it will impact travelers immediately, and the issues are a bit difficult for, for the public uh, or people who are not pilots to understand because it has to do not just with Taiwan regulation as well as international regulations and best practices for the number of off days or the number of hours in between flights. Uh, so the, the airlines are in, a, are in a difficult position because their business will be disrupted, but it's, it's unclear how successful a pilot strike actually will be if they don't have public support, which I think is going to be very unlikely. Uh, yeah, a couple things I can add to that. Um, that was an excellent summary. Um, the uh, I don't think this is going to get as much public support or uh, as much press attention as the um, flight attendants protest, largely because of the timing. Uh, the and also the flight attendants, uh, and this is a very cynical way of putting it, but uh, were very photogenic. Um, now, I also think that at this point, it's still pretty early days because the um, 
so far, really, all this has gone through is the Taoyuan labor arbitration uh, mechanism and the uh, the Ministry of Transportation and Communications has come out and saying they're going to work with the Ministry of Labor. And so there's so now it's kind of bumped upstairs, so to speak, in the uh, government hierarchy. So now that it's moving out of local Taoyuan uh, officialdom uh, and it's moved up to the national level, then there's, there's, I think there's still a lot of potential room here for negotiation. Of course, that's Ross. You hinted at that this has been going on a long time. This isn't like a six-month-old dispute. This is a several-year-old dispute. That, that's right. And uh, I suppose one could give credit to the pilots for uh, negotiating for so long and, and not being hasty in seeking a, a membership approval for a strike, although, again, that has to be balanced against the, the realities that they won't have much public support. Uh, but we also should keep in mind that there's been significant management changes at both of these airlines. Um, you could look at that uh, as having one of two impacts on these negotiations that uh, either it sets the clock back, so you're starting all over again, uh, or the new management has come in and said to the pilots, oh, we want to work with you, let's let's find a way to uh, resolve these issues, and then the pilots say, okay, so we're, we won't strike, we'll work with you, and that is another reason why their patience may have run out. But uh, China Airlines being controlled by the government, there, there's been, yeah, obviously, the change in government in 2016 means new management came in, although in the interim periods, uh, there's also changes in management. Again, this is all political appointees being changed. Uh, it's a great job to have. It's a great job to give away or a great series of, of executive jobs to give away to uh political appointees, uh, very high profile. Uh, the salaries are quite good for the executives at the airlines. Uh, so there's been a, a significant number of management changes at China Airlines. And then on, on the EVA side, uh, when the founder of the Evergreen Group passed away, uh, there were some boardroom changes. Some will call it a boardroom coup, where one of his, uh, the founder's sons, Mr. Zhang Rongfei, one of his sons, uh, who had been running the airline, uh, was thrown out, to put it frankly, and uh, other children took over the running of the airline. Uh, so that may have delayed the negotiations, but it, might, might, it, it seems that ultimately uh, the new management has decided not to accede to the demands of the pilots. And Donovan, what about this given notice? Do you think airline pilots should give three days notice, seven days notice, ten days notice, or fourteen days notice? <laughs> Well, honestly, I think actually talking about the uh, Eva, Eva coup, uh, to me the big question that it brings up is why do so many Taiwan, Taiwanese new Taiwanese company, companies like to use the word use Lux L U X in the name of everything, which I believe that founder's son is starting up an airline, Star Lux. But anyway, uh, as far as how many days they should give, considering that uh, the impact on people's travel plans and also uh, obviously air cargo, which can be very sensitive, uh, everything from medical to um, to diplomatic uh, that a little bit more time I think than three days would be appropriate definitely at least a week I mean uh, you know I think the government is correct on that um, however the uh, you know the um, there, there's not really much I, I suppose the government can do if they decide to go and strike and only give three days notice I'm not really sure what legal mechanism they could bring to four on that no 
Anyway, we should move on to something completely different. Well, no, not, not that far removed from airports and aeroplanes, and that being the Ministry of Foreign Affairs this week was quick to dispel rumours that appeared on the internet claiming that ROC passports were not being recognised by international airlines due to Chinese pressure. Now, the denial follows claims that an ROC passport holder was almost, hint almost, denied entry into the United Kingdom after an airline employee said the passport was no longer valid from July the 20th. 25th on the insistence of Beijing. Now, Foreign Office spokesman Andrew Lee told reporters here that the rumour was blatantly false and he assured the public that the UK and the European Union continue to grant ROC passport holders visa-free entry and the rules have not changed. Now, officials have said the problem was no doubt due to some over-diligent airline ground crew member having been rather confused by the recent calls by Beijing for airlines to change Taiwan's designation on their websites. So, Ross? Well, we don't know what really happened. As you said, Gavin, it could have just been one uh, ground staff who misunderstood the status of these documents or cross-trade relations or issues that this person never deals with. And then suddenly uh, a passenger attempts to board a plane and and shows a Taiwan passport. It was very confusing. Uh, Clearly, that's just a lack of familiarity or a lack of internal training. Uh, the, The response from the Taiwan government seems to assume that there was a uh, nefarious China uh, online strategy to spread disinformation. We don't have any proof of that, though. Uh, so the, the response was, was very hasty and to, and, and to call on the public not to believe uh, Internet rumors. Unfortunately, we don't know if that was really the case. Uh, an alternative approach here, frankly, would be not to be not to act in a very reactive way, but in a proactive way. Now would be the time to be talking to uh, international airlines or um, offering to have tech rows around the world, talk to airlines or airport staff in those countries and, and do a refresher course on what is a Taiwan passport and why it's generally accepted for, for boarding a plane. Yeah, that, I mean, that pretty much covers it all. I mean, you know, there's uh, there, there definitely are uh, a lot of people who think this was a that either this was a disinformation campaign to start or it was one that was hyped by uh, by pro-China elements to sow confusion, and there's a good chance that that is indeed the case. Uh, but um, yeah, you know, there 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 really isn't a whole lot to say or do about it except to educate the public and educate the airlines. Other than that, I don't really see much else that can be done. I mean, but do you well, think- well there's always the option. Uh, you know, Gavin, Gavin, I'm sorry, Donovan's asking the question about what else can be done, and this has come up. Uh, during the previous Chen Shui-bian DPP presidency, which is a radical redesign of the passport cover, um, put the word Taiwan, uh, de-emphasize references to the ROC. Well, Taiwan is on the cover now. Yes, but but uh, it, it's still causing confusion, right? Yeah, no, yeah, I, yeah, it is. I mean, that, you're right. I mean, if they, I mean, but the the word Taiwan is pretty prominent now, and I think it's a slightly bigger font than Republic of China. Slightly still bigger. Republic of China, and it's still causing confusion. Yeah, I think they should remove Re- Republic of China or yeah. make it, it smaller might, font. I, I, it might be a very feasible solution. I, um, it, of course, it would uh, unleash a firestorm of media criticism by the unification as media, and, and obviously uh, Kuomintang 
politicians would also be very critical as well. Uh, but uh, if you talk about font size, maybe the font size should be made even smaller or should be uh, eliminated entirely or put on, on the very last page in, in a footnote that this passport <laughs> is issued by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Republic. A little star next to Taiwan and at the bottom. <laughs> Formerly the Republic of China, the Republic of China. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, they, I mean, they could move the Republic of China into the inside and remove it off the cover, full stop, certainly. Anyway, enough of passports, and we'll talk about nuclear issues. We're talking about pro-nuclear issues, which we don't normally do, but we are this week. And that being because former President Mine Joe voiced his support earlier this week for two referendum proposals seeking to override the scrapping of the fourth nuclear power plant and also the scrapping of the government's plans to make Taiwan nuclear power-free by 2025. Ma, of course, actually made the decision to mothball the fourth nuclear power plant when he was in office in 2014, and he did that amid public concerns and large street protests over nuclear safety. However, speaking to reporters this week, Ma said that as global warming intensifies, the trend against nuclear power that emerged after the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant accident in 2011 has in fact reversed. And he also claimed that opposing nuclear energy is now an outdated trend and it's been surpassed by the need to reduce carbon dioxide emissions and tackle global warming. Now, one of the referendum proposals asked whether the power plant should be activated for commercial operations, that being the fourth nuclear power plant, while the other referendum proposal is about whether Article 95-1 of the Electricity Act, which will phase out nuclear power plants by 2025, should be abolished. Now, President Tsai Ing-wen is dismissing Ma's claims, insisting that the island will not face power shortages after it goes nuclear power-free in 2025, and the transition will make Taiwan's energy system, in her words, more advanced, resilient and efficient. And of course all this comes as we're enjoying our baking summer months in Taiwan where there's always lots of concern about power, Donovan. Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, they've been repeatedly breaching the 6% uh, reserve margin on the power, um, which, of course, sends uh, uh, people and especially big companies into a panic. And, of course, last year we had uh, the power uh, go out uh, a couple of times. Um, the, the big problem, I mean... <laughs> The fourth nuclear power plant has been an on-again, on off-again project, and the, the costs associated with ending, you know, cutting off the project and then rebooting it and then start stopping it, and yeah, the amount of money that's been spent back and forth on the fourth nuclear power plant, uh, starting, restarting, and ending it and restarting it again, have been f extraordinary. Um, the uh, is, uh, the real big question mark are two uh, at this point. Uh, I don't know if they necessarily need to put in the fourth nuclear power plant, but uh, the question is: and is do we have much faith in the ability of? the government to move forward with bringing in a, a lot of the new uh, the, the power plant options. First of all, the Shenmue plant uh, in New Taipei, the coal-fired one there, and the uh, particularly the offshore wind ones coming in off of the west coast, particularly around uh, Zhanghua. If they can bring these online faster and they bring them on quick enough, uh, then they will be able to phase out the nuclear power plants. 
that's a, a huge question mark. Taiwan doesn't have any experience with offshore wind, although the companies that they brought in, uh, Orsted and these ones from overseas, are uh, serious heavyweights in Europe, but they don't have a lot of experience with the Taiwan Strait, which has conditions that are renowned for being unique. So the question mark is, will all of these things come in in time to stabilize uh, the power supply in time to be able to phase this phase out nuclear power in 2025? And at this point, it's way too early to know. But of course, more importantly, Donovan, is do you think the public will, of course, like I said, Ma mothballed the power plant in 2014 because of public street demonstrations? I mean, do you think Ma said that it's become bla- it's, it's, it's become old hat to oppose nuclear power? Do you think those people that took to the streets those years ago are now agreeing with him, or they still are anti-nuclear power? Well, personally, I, I'm generally pro-nuclear power, but I, I kind of agree with the protesters in this case. Um, because, you know, I, I mean, I think they're absolutely correct that Taiwan is obviously very seismically active, has a, hu- a very high uh, population density, and is prone to get hit with things like tsunamis and natural disasters in the same sort of way that, uh, you know, the Daiichi plant was hit uh, in Fukushima. So the. Um, Taiwan is very highly at risk, plus the designs of the nuclear power plants that are in operation in Taiwan, and even the fourth nuclear power plant, are pretty old designs. They're not terribly safe designs. And even worse, they're plagued by the worst possible disaster uh, of all. They're managed by Kai Power, which is notoriously uh, (laughs) um, not very good at their jobs. It remains to be seen what the appetite for uh, among the public is for this referendum and holding the referendum, let alone... Oh, it won't pass. There's no way it'll pass. ...in favor of, of uh, uh, restarting nuclear. But it's good to see that Ma and Joe is defending uh, the use of nuclear power. I'm also generally in, in favor of it. Uh, it's curious that it's several years too late and would have been better if he had a more firm position on the issue while he was president and could have executed successfully on the starting of the fourth nuclear power plant. Uh, That doesn't mean that he couldn't have simultaneously pursued green energy initiative, renewable energy initiatives as well. But whether or not the 2025 non-nuclear goal, which the current government talks about, could actually be achieved is you know, for the reasons that we've been discussing, um, not just today, but on many previous shows. Uh, and, and Donovan mentioned some very good reasons just now uh, about the challenges of, of offshore wind in the Taiwan Strait. We really just don't know if that's achievable. And the key thing is, if that's not achievable, the balance has to come from nuclear. There, that's just the, the current mix of energy sources for Taiwan. It's not going to change. Uh, if the renewables are not providing a sufficient amount, either you have more dirty energy or you use more nuclear or you maintain the current levels of dirty and nuclear. Uh, so it just uh, a big conundrum for, for the government, no doubt. Uh, but whether or not the public wants to see more nuclear, it, it might be three or four years too late. The time to make this case was way back in 2013, 2014. 
Yeah, I think that, that, that that's absolutely correct. Um, you know, the, the the big. I don't think that there's any way that a, the referendum will pass. I just don't think there's any appetite for nuclear here, in spite of the fact that they're going to, you know, create new uh, coal-fired uh, plants both here in tight. Uh, they're going to create new natural gas. Uh, uh, they're going to add two nuclear, sorry, two uh, gas-powered uh, units at the Taijung power plant, which is roughly the equivalent of one coal-fired unit. And then, of course, they're going to create the Shenmao unit of uh, coal up in uh, uh, New Taipei, which is going to, of course, increase air pollution, which is, of course, uh, both kind of iffy, but both of that, both of those suggest that the government is kind of aware that they're gambling on, um, they're gambling on the uh, renewable energies, particularly the offshore wind, and of course solar has a limited capacity. And at this point, the, the battery technology really isn't there yet necessarily, or it's not uh, cost-effective yet to uh, stabilize the power output that comes in from solar or or wind. Which raises one more interesting question, and yes, it's premature, but will the KMT presidential candidate for the January 2020 presidential election, uh, whoever it is, run on a platform of restarting the fourth nuclear power plant? <laughs> Again, it's too early to say. We just don't know. We don't even know who that's going to be. Uh, but it's, it's certainly going to come up. And if they're going to look to distinguish themselves from the Thai government, uh, that certainly will be one way to do it if your primary concern is energy security, but if your primary concern is popular opinion, you might not be able to run on that kind of platform. In which case, this whole conversation is a bit of a waste because no future leader is going to, whether it's President Tsai is reelected or a KMT candidate is elected in 2020, neither would have an intention of restarting the fourth nuclear power plant. I do think it's kind of interesting, I, I think you raise a good point here, I, is how strongly the KMT has recently thrown themselves behind the issue of supporting nuclear power when it's not that popular of an issue. Uh, I, I find that very interesting. But I, I, I have a, a suspicion that it may be related to central Taiwan, where air pollution has become such a huge issue in the election. Um, it, it has been, up until the East Asian Youth Games canceling, it has been the issue way beyond any other here in the in the Taichung uh, mayoral race. So I'm kind of wondering if that's why so the KMT is trying to paint itself as the uh, clean alternative on the air uh, on the air pollution front, in spite of all the history. And before we go this evening, claw machines offering prizes ranging from sex toys to cuddly children's toys and even cash have been popping up in vacant stores across the island for several months now and they've led to controversy, some rather colourful features photographs and some rather amusing cable television news pieces. Now the Taipei city government this week wrapped up a three-month crackdown on the claw machine arcades as it sought to ensure that the prizes on offer were not dangerous. An official said that claw machines that offer food products and cosmetics without Chinese language labeling were illegal and machines that failed to display the operator's contact information would be shut down and cash prizes of course were also a big no-no as that constitutes gambling now operators who failed to remove the dangerous or illegal prizes or even failed to clearly identify their contact information have faced fines although those fines haven't been very big 
So, claw machines, Donovan, have you got into the claw machine craze? Well, believe it or not, uh, you, you overlooked one key element, which I've actually seen, is that some of them are, are, are actually, uh, the prizes are cuddly sex toys, and I'm not making that up. Um, yeah, they're all over the place now, uh, down here. Uh, they basically, any open storefront, and they're packing, packing them in. Um, and as we reported recently, of course, a little kid managed to find a little hole in one of them and get get uh, himself stuck in one. Um, you know, but I don't really see how they're dangerous. I, I, I feel like the government's cracking down on this just simply because everyone's kind of rolling their eyes at uh, the proliferation of them. I think it's got a fad that's going to start to fade anyway, regardless of what the government does. Ross, have you played any claw machine games? In fact, I have. The last time I went to the claw machine, uh, the, the cuddly little toys inside were all media personalities, and there was a little Gavin, <laughs> and it gave me great pleasure to put that claw right into the Gavin. I didn't even care if I, if I, got, I dropped him into the, to the uh, hole and got, you know, actually could walk away with a little cuddly Gavin. Uh, but it was great just to put that claw for, for 10 or 20 NT right into the Gavin doll. Uh, you know, I think part of the, the frenzy here with the media coverage does arise from the incident that Donovan referred to with the child who, unfortunately or amazingly, depending on one's perspective, yeah. wound up in the machine. And it seemed like uh, there was this, uh, a reluctance to really tell the truth by the, by the uh, adults involved, uh, whether it was the operator or the uh, parents. Uh, be that as it may, it did get an enormous amount of attention. Uh, I don't think it's gambling. That, that really is, is an overreaction. In fact, I, I think it just shows the trend that we often see in Taiwan, which is to over-regulate and over-govern um, both at the municipal uh, county city government level as well as the central government level. So we're going to, we, we, have, we have something that might be the most minor of issues, minor of problems, and we're going to deploy a lot of government resources now to write new regulations, to send inspectors. And this is all taxpayer-funded over-regulation that really serves little purpose. And uh, maybe the government officials involved in this crackdown, as you called it, Gavin, think that the public is going to warm up to them. So if you're an incumbent government, uh, elected government, whether um, you know, Ko Wenjia in, in Taipei or Lin Jialong in Kaichung, and you're sending the forces of your government to crack down on these claw machines, maybe you think the public is going to look at you as, as a great savior of consumer rights. I actually have a feeling that, that this is exactly the kind of issue where if somebody gave data to America and said, Mayor, do you see how much city government resources have been spent on this issue recently? He would say that that's ridiculous and put a stop to it and just say, uh, as long as nobody is hurt, nobody's losing great amounts of money, uh, there's nothing wrong with these claw machines. But believe it or not, the central government actually had to come up with nine policies, I believe, for these claw machines. Well, that, that, that goes to my point. That's just a ridiculous uh, example of over-regulation and a misuse of taxpayer-funded government resources. Surely the government departments that were involved in, in, in that decision-making process had more pressing issues than this. 
Yeah, I, I think Ross and I are completely in agreement on this. Uh, the government getting involved in this is just a colossal waste of resources. It's, it's, these, are, these machines are about as harmless as it gets, uh, notwithstanding a kid finding a, an obscure hole in the bottom of it, according to the security footage, because nobody could figure out how the kid got in until they looked at the security footage. Um, you know, the, the, these machines are pretty benign. I, you know, the, this is, as Ross put it, it's just simply government overreach. And, uh, you know, people are kind of responding with a kind of roll of their eyes at this fad seeming to take over entire neighborhoods. And, uh, you know, because they're everywhere now. And, uh, it, it, yeah, it's just a giant waste of taxpayer money for the government to get involved. Anyway, that's all. We'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined this evening on the telephone by Ross Feingold. Good evening. And also on the telephone by Donovan Smith. And great to be here, Gavin. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.